All right, it's been a couple of weeks since we last met, and I don't think it's lost on you, but just in case you need orientation, we are studying the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the introduction to a larger body of teaching from Jesus, a sermon we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. The Bible doesn't call it the Sermon on the Mount. It was Augustine in the fourth century that first gave it this name. But these three chapters, Matthew 5 through 7, record the most revered, most famous, most challenging sermon that has ever been preached. And as the first major body of teaching in Matthew's gospel, the Sermon on the Mount serves as Jesus' manifesto on the kingdom of God. That's a mouthful. Jesus' manifesto on the kingdom of God. Jesus' ministry in chapter 4 has been this inbreaking of what we might call kingdom reality, of miracles and of repentance, which is to prepare hearts for the kingdom. And so this sermon tells its listeners who the subjects or citizens of the kingdom will be, what they will look like, what will characterize them, who they are. And right out of the gate, it describes these kingdom citizens as blessed or what some might call happy. What I like to say is these are those people who are approved by God. And and contrary to the thinking of the day, the blessed are not the wealthy. The blessed are not the powerful or the spiritually elite. They're not the honored or outwardly successful. The, The blessed are the poor in spirit, the meek, the pure in heart, those who mourn, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and on and on we could go. So there is this in-breaking of kingdom reality, and Jesus turns the kingdom upside down in his teaching on these beatitudes. He recategorizes blessedness for us. He reorients blessedness in a way that we would have never come up with ourselves. Because we so very often think of the blessed life as... The hashtag blessed life, the life that celebrates new cars or swanky vacations or landing the high-paying job, that's kind of the social media definition of blessed. But Jesus comes along and describes in eightfold detail the way of true blessing. And what we get confronted with in the Beatitudes is a question that gets asked eight different ways. And the question is, Do you believe the way of Jesus is the way of true blessing? Do you believe the way of Jesus is the way of true blessing, of happiness, of God's approval? Do you believe meekness and mercy and persecution and peacemaking is the way the blessed life is to look? Because there is a difference, particularly in the American church, there is a difference in merely professing Christ and possessing Christ. There is a difference between professing Christ and possessing Christ, and I believe the litmus test is found in these Beatitudes. And and maybe up until this point, you are passing the test. The first six Beatitudes are a perfectly accurate characterization of of your life as a believer and follower of Jesus, and I hope they are. But these last two, boy, these last two, 
This is what one preacher I was listening to referred to. This is, this is varsity Christianity. So let's read this together. We'll read again all of the Beatitudes as a whole, and then we'll focus in on the seventh one here in just a moment. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Jesus speaking. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. So again, the Beatitudes, they are not isolated truisms. So we, we are to take this teaching from Jesus as a unified whole. They are a ladder or a staircase, wholly dependent on each rung or step to get you to the next rung or to the next step. You cannot say that my life is characterized by Beatitude 2 and by, by Beatitude 4, therefore I am blessed. I'm good. This description has sort of eight interdependent, emphatic ways of being. And when I say emphatic, it means these and only these are the ones that receive the blessing. And so the rung we arrive at tonight, the rung on the ladder, the step in the staircase is peacemaking. Are you a peacemaker? Quick story for you. I was uniquely confronted with this question several years ago when I took a job as the lead pastor at a Mennonite Brethren church. This is circa 2012. Now, the Mennonite Brethren, they're not Amish. Uh, the men don't all have beards. As far as I know, no one there churned their own butter. Uh, there, there were no, uh, as Charles, could, you could t we, Charles and I could, could maybe talk long about this. There were no horse-drawn buggies. Everyone had electricity. But the Mennonite brethren are what's called an Anabaptist denomination. Not anti-Baptist, but Anabaptist. And the movement dates back to the Reformation. And because of the way the early Anabaptists, the way they navigated the Reformation... The way they thought about the church and, and, and the state and, and, and how that came together during that time, time period in particular, they were deemed radical in their approach to what we call peace and non-resistance. That they viewed the state as entirely distinct from the church. And one of the cornerstones was this idea that the church was to be wholeheartedly committed to this teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. They almost interpreted the whole Bible through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount which made them this quiet people who sought peace and did not fight the state's battles in times of military conflict. And there's a whole lot more history that I could share, but as I'm being interviewed for this job by both the church and denominational officials, I have to make it clear that I do not agree with Article 13 in their statement of faith, which was the article on peace and non-resistance. The church was fine with my dissent on that article because none of them agreed with it either. But the denomination, <laughs> the denomination needed me to explain myself. And so I explained to them that my dad was career military, that 
just war theory seemed consistent with scripture, that Romans 13 defines the role of the state to to deal justly with with, with tyranny by the bearing of the sword. And and since there's always tyranny in the world, I'm grateful for those who would go and combat it. Uh, Also expressing the, the unmistakable fact that the U.S. military is the largest peacekeeping force in the history of the world. And so the sum total of my response was that Matthew 5, 9 is, is very, a very, very fine interpersonal ethic, one that I certainly want to follow, but I could not apply it to the realm of geopolitics. That's sort of where we landed. And come to find out, the Mennonite brethren who constitute the, the evangelical arm of the Anabaptist movement, they were in the midst of amending their Article 13. They wanted it to express a more moderate or mediating position that basically said, some of us are pacifists, some of us aren't, it's kind of up to you. That was where they were landing. To which I commented that if your articles of faith have a mediating position, they probably don't need to be your articles of faith or in that, right? But no one was ready to listen to an outsider on the issue, so I didn't go very far. But I bring up that experience because it's the geopolitical implications of this beatitude that would have also been so stunning to Jesus' audience. Because remember, their contemporary idea of the Messiah, their conception of the promised king who was coming to reign, this Messiah was going to liberate them from Rome. He would be a geopolitical ruler. He would, he would militarily defeat the enemies of Israel and establish this glorious kingdom, putting all nations under his feet. How on earth does that align with Matthew 5, 9, which says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. All right, let's figure it out by looking at this verse in four frames. The problem of peace, the prince of peace, the price of peace, and then the parentage of peace. First, the problem of peace. Historians Will and Ariel Durant, in their book, which is titled The Lessons of History, they say this, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization or democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. It's a remarkable statement, isn't it? Only 7% of recorded history has no war in it. War is a constant reality. Multiple wars are being fought in this world at this very moment. Warring nations or warring tribes, warring gangs even. And where there is peace or unity in the world, it it usually only exists in terms of of people being united in what they are against. See what I'm saying? So even peace is predicated upon what we are at war with. So allied nations are united in their their peace against totalitarian regimes. Federal agencies are united in their fight against drug trafficking or some other social evil. You know, we have progressive groups. They're united in their opposition against conservatism or conservatives are united in their opposition as well. Ironically, people that that march and carry signs, they peacefully march because of what they are fighting against. So so even the appearance of peace in our world is just clothed resistance in many ways. We're collectively with each other when we are against something else. 
You see this? The only time we see people globally united is in the movies. And what has occurred in those scenes? Alien invasion. <laughs> right? Earth's people will only be one when there is interplanetary war. That's when we'll have peace on Earth. But we'll be warring against something else. All that to say, there is a peace problem. There's a peace problem. If we go to the book of Genesis and we look at Noah, we read in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 11 that the earth was filled with violence. That's why God had to come. That's why God had to bring a flood upon the world and destroy all creatures except for Noah and his family. He did it because violence characterized the world that God had made. Seventy times in the Old Testament scriptures, this word violence is used. At At the close of the Old Testament and before the New Testament opens, There are 400 silent interim years between the covenants. We call it the intertestamental period. Yet in those 400 400 intertestamental years, there are five bloody wars for the city of Jerusalem. So ironically, the the, the city of, of peace, which is its title, which is its name, the city of peace has been fought for as much as any piece of ground on planet Earth. This world has a problem with peace. And the question is why? Why? Everyone wants peace. Everyone values peace. The stock beauty pageant answer of world peace, though it seems trite, it's a real and genuine longing. John Lennon, I think he was utterly sincere when he sang, give peace a chance. Why is it so elusive that human history has never actually achieved or experienced peace. If everybody longs after peace and peacemaking, what is the reason for so much strife, for so much tension and bitterness and conflict and violence and bloodshed and and war across our, our nation and across our world? And I fear that the answer to this question is the answer to all the questions that we have heard week after week after week in this study. As we've looked at this passage of Scripture, the problem of peace, what is the problem of peace? It's the human heart. The human heart is the heart of of the problem. Albert Einstein, he won the Nobel Peace Peace Prize for Physics in 1921, something related to the theory of relativity, which is a big deal. In one of his lectures in 1948, he he commented on the threat of nuclear warfare. And this is what he said, and I'm quoting him. It is not a physical problem, but an ethical one. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart and its explosive power for evil. If you turn to James chapter 4 might flip over there. James explains for us the, the exact problem underlying all of our problems. James 4 and verse 1 and 2, he, he's asking the question that we are asking here. Where do wars come from? Where, where is all of this, this violence originating? Why all the conflict? James chapter 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures your desires that wage war in your members. You, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. 
So he's asking the question, where is all this strife? Where is all this contention? Where is all this, this battling and bloodshed and war coming from? What motivates it? What's the, what's the seed of its origin? He's saying it comes from you. It comes from inside you. Your desires, your wants, your lusts, your aspirations. That's the problem. The problem's your heart. It's interesting that the Greek word that James uses for desires is the word hedonist. Hedonist is the word that that, that we get our term hedonism from. And hedonism is simply the doctrine of everyone doing as they want to do. Self-satisfaction and, and, and gratification. That's all that is important to the hedonist. The problem is self-desire. I want this, I want that, I feel like this, I want to exhaust my desires and my passions and my instincts on what I desire. And that's the cry of our whole world today, is it not? Every conflict in humanity, whether it be from a conflict in marriage, some broken business partnership, even, even a world war, all of these conflicts stem from the same problem, self-interested desires. The word for peace is the word shalom. And the, and the thing about that word is it's extremely deep. It's more than simply the absence of war or strife. It, it's not just a negative thing that there's no fighting or bickering. Shalom is a very positive thing. So it means not just the absence of war, but it means the presence of something very special, a wholeness, a, a feeling, and an, ab, and an attitude of absolute well-being. I call it Flourishing. What, what shalom is pointing us to. And so when you look at the state of man, you cannot help but see the, the need for this. Flourishing, wholeness, an attitude of absolute well-being, this longing for shalom, shalom for, for broken people, for broken, tormented hearts and minds, peace for, for ripped-apart homes, peace for, for reputations that have been ruined by the flesh. Peace for nations that have been ripped by ethnic cleansing or sectarianism or war. Peace for a world that's dying. Shalom, wholeness, flourishing. This is a deep, deep longing. But ever since the beginning, since man's declaration of independence from God, Scripture says that we have been God's enemy. That there's been this vertical war happening as well. That there's been no peace between God and man since Adam took that fruit in the garden. And the book of Romans testifies to it. It says that the carnal mind is at enmity with God. Enmity means against God, in rebellion with God. And we, as we sit as a sinner unsaved, we, we are totally depraved in every area and every facet of our lives. Every area is not maybe as, as awful as it could be, but every area is affected and tainted by this heart problem, by this sin that plagues us. Maybe you know what Jonathan Edwards said. This is powerful. He said, the unconverted man would kill God if he could get his hands on him. And that's, that's right, really. So the problem we have with peace is the human condition. It's the, the human heart. And when we talk about peace, particularly in this season that we're entering into, this Christmas season, I'm always reminded of the words of Longfellow. Henry Wordsworth Longfellow wrote the classic hymn or, or, or poem in its original form called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And he wrote it in the middle of the American Civil War, his 
His wife had died in a fire in 1861. His son was wounded fighting for the Union Army. And as he hears the church bells sounding for Christmas in 1863, he, he writes this poem. And if you're familiar with that poem turned song, the, the, the second to last verse goes like this. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And, and that's just this powerful testimony toward our, uh, concerning our need for intervention. Which brings us to the next point, the Prince of Peace. The word peace is used over 400 times in Scripture. This is a primary theme. Six times in the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. And that title simply underscores that that our God is not at all conflicted. God is at peace within himself, and his will for his creation is for there to be shalom, for there to be peace. Which explains, as you know, one of the names that's given to the Messiah. It's the name of this point in the outline, the Prince of Peace. And as you think about the mission of the Messiah, we're, we're brought immediately to the gospel. The gospel, the, the good news, the, the glorious message of our Savior is the solution to a heart that I just described as beyond remedy. The gospel is the only answer to the peace problem. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not counting their, their, their peace problem, their enmity to God against them, but he's reconciling the world to himself and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In the verse preceding, it repeats, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is beautiful. We are the enemies of God, but the love of God is greater than our rebellion against him. God, our enemy, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He came in the human flesh, came to us, came to humanity as humanity, and he came to die so that through his death we could be made right with God. Our warring with God could turn into a relationship of a peace with God, of shalom, wholeness, or flourishing, because God, who is a God of peace, made it so. In Ephesians, we read it again, Ephesians 2 and verse 14, for he is our peace. He, Jesus, is our peacemaker. He, he tears down the dividing wall between us. He puts to death the conflict between man and God, and in so doing also puts to death the conflict between man and man. The Word of God says that because of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ, every type of barrier, every type of wall in the church of Jesus Christ is gone. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, all are, what's the text say, one in Christ Jesus. And that doesn't mean everybody does or becomes the same thing, but what it does mean in regards to salvation is that no one's left out, no one's excluded. And in this universal inclusion comes the end of conflict and the end of barriers and animosity and hatred toward one another because of what one another is. People who should be at odds with one another, they're reconciled in Christ. Our default mode is not conflict any longer. Our default mode 
is reconciliation. And as I was thinking about that this week, even thinking about either business partnerships or, or, or marriages and thinking about Paul's words on being unequally yoked. I couldn't help but think about the wisdom of Paul because if you have people who are not bent toward conflict but now bent toward reconciliation as these texts describe, if you have two people either in partnership or in marriage who are, even though conflict arises, are moving in the direction of reconciliation, then you have something that works. If you have only one person that is, it doesn't work. Certainly if you have two people that won't, you're going to end up in a bad place. But if you have two people who are reconciled to God and therefore given the ministry of reconciliation, things can work. There's, a, there's an equal yokeness that causes things practically to work themselves out. Reconciliation. It's no wonder on the first Christmas day that, that the angels came and said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among with whom God's favor rests that's the agents of peace those whom God favors and whom his peace rests upon the 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 prince of peace makes us ultimately right with God and is the only solution to the problem of our conflict with one another but it's not easy it's not easy look at that next point the price of peace so making peace with God this act of God that puts us right with him It came at an infinite, inestimable price, the price of the blood of his own son. That is what a cost, right? And so we are naive to think that that our mission of peacemaking that Jesus is giving here, the peacemaking called for in the Beatitudes, we're naive to think that it won't cost very much. Because it will. As I said, the term peace or shalom in the Hebrew is found throughout the Bible. But this word peacemaker is only found here. The the, the Sermon on the Mount is its only occurrence. And it's a word that literally means one who labors for or one who initiates shalom, peace. And with that, it's important to clarify that, that being a peacemaker is not being a peacekeeper. Not the same thing. This, this is not a promise of blessing for those who are just sort of easygoing. This isn't saying blessed are those who, who try to avoid conflict or never really want to rock the boat. Jesus is not saying blessed are those who, who live and let live, those who are tolerant and simply want there to be peace. The peace sign sticker on the back of your Volkswagen bug does not make you a peacemaker. Being a peacemaker extends way beyond the price of a bumper sticker. It may have social cost, financial cost, all kinds of relational costs are associated with peacemaking. But in a world that stands very ready to be offended, very ready to litigate over just about anything, a person who seeks peace at their own cost is really the most countercultural kind of person you can be. Maybe you've seen the story this week. It's a story of a guy named John Chow. John Chow went to Oral Roberts University. He's been in missionary service for a good number of years, and from what I can tell, a fairly prepared missionary. And he made his way to the North Sentinel Islands in the Indian Ocean off the coast of India. And some are calling him a martyr. Some are calling him a fool. I'm not sure what category to put him in. 
Um, I don't think we know enough yet. There's certain, there certainly seems to be enough there to really have a great deal of ad- admiration for what he was feeling called to do. But his goal was to bring peace to what he knew was a violent, violent people. He wanted to declare the gospel. He wanted to share the love of Jesus Christ with people who had never heard his name. And, and, and evangelism, particularly frontier evangelism, is, is the ultimate peacemaking enterprise. Because you're wanting to see people reconciled to God, ultimately. And you think about Isaiah 52.7, which says, and it's repeated in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. Who what? Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. And to do that, to take that kind of risk, to go that far, I know it's an extreme example, speaking of this young man who lost his life taking the gospel, the message or the love of Christ to this, this island off of India. It takes initiation. It takes action. If you're wondering what else makes you a peacemaker, Matthew 5 actually provides a little more help. Look at Matthew 5, verse 39. Jesus puts a little meat on the bone of peacemaking. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. What did I tell you? Varsity Christianity. (laughs) You've probably heard it explained before. A Roman soldier in the first century could call on anyone in subjection to them, call on them to carry their armor or, or carry whatever load they were carrying, and they could take it for the span of a mile. A thousand paces was the edict. You couldn't argue. You couldn't say, well, you know, maybe next time, Mr. Soldier, because I'm really in a hurry, I've got some places to be. No, you, you carried out the request when it was made of you. Jesus' command here, addressing this very, this very issue of Roman subjugation and this, this heart of animosity that any Hebrew, any Israelite would have had toward Rome, saying, no, 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 not just one mile, you go two miles, 2,000 paces. And for us, the upshot of this is go beyond the response of the flesh. And with your life, demonstrate a kind of otherworldliness that people will know that you belong to heaven and not to earth. Your empire is not Rome, and your emperor is not Caesar. Your king is Jesus Christ, and what he calls you to, you will obey. You look down a little further, there's another example of how to be a peacemaker. Verse 43 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the teachers of the law, they like to take the truth of a biblical command and they would flip it around and make the converse true, whether it was stated in scripture or not. So in their mind, in their teaching, to love one's neighbor meant to hate one's enemy. That was the converse. It's just an awful distortion of Scripture. And Jesus clears it up. He clears up the distortion. He says, you don't hate your enemy. You love them and pray for them. Again, supernatural response. Another example of the price of peace. Look at Matthew 5, verse 47. So just a few more verses down. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? 
Do not even Gentiles do the same? Once again, you distinguish yourself as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven You show by showing kindness and grace to all people. Worldly people can welcome and be amicable to those who are just like them. You follow Jesus when you can show hospitality and warmth to everyone, even those who might be considered your enemies. There was an emperor in the middle of the 4th century, a Roman emperor named Julian, uh, His name was actually Julian the Apostate. And he had this to say about the explosion of Christianity throughout the empire. He says, let us consider that nothing has so much contributed to the progress of the superstition of Christians as their charity to strangers. I think we ought to discharge this obligation ourselves, establish hospitals in every place, for it would be a shame for us to abandon our poor while to abandon our poor, while the impious Galileans, meaning the Christians, they provide not only for their own, but also for ours, welcoming them into their agape or to their love. They, they attract them as children are attracted with cakes. Julian's saying, something's going on with these Christians. They don't only take care of, they don't only take care of themselves. They take care of anyone, everyone. They invite all people in to the love that they have and share with one another. We're losing ground. We need to mimic this somehow. It's just a powerful testimony from the early church. One of my favorite admonitions from Paul is in Colossians 3, where he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. What a way to stand out in the world. Instead of conflict and argument and despising one another, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I don't know if you've seen this phenomenon that's going on in the culture today. We just celebrated Thanksgiving last week. But one of the things that's sort of risen in popularity is not Thanksgiving, but this idea of Friendsgiving. You guys have seen this, Friendsgiving? Uh, and, And it's sort of an alternative to Thanksgiving to where young people... Uh, or old, I'm sure, as well, would say, we're not going to go home and be with family because there's awkwardness there, there's hurt there, there's conflict there, there are uncles or aunts there that I don't want to have to interact with. And so we're just going to get together with friends. We don't know how to deal with conflict. We don't know how to, to, to handle the, the hurt or being triggered by Uncle Bob, whatever. No offense, Bob. But we, we're going to just get together with friends. That would be so much, so much easier. Again, there's no peace of Christ ruling in someone's heart that would lead them to gather with people maybe they disagreed with, and so we can only gather with those who we know we agree in totality with. I love Ephesians 2.13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Which is to say, those of you who are in conflict, perpetually in conflict because of maybe a a bad relationship with God or just a disposition that you have not checked and repented of, he's to say, look past the person that's wronged you, look to the one that you have wronged, look at the way he has dealt with you. Look Look what he has done by going to the cross in your place, look to him and make 
peace. Last point, the parentage of peace. Now, all of the Beatitudes have in them a promise of blessing. So the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The mournful, they're going to be comforted. The meek inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. The merciful, they're given mercy. The pure in heart, they uh, shall see God. The peacemaker, the peacemaker, however, is not just given a blessing. The peacemaker is given Look here, a status. Peacemaking doesn't get you something, it declares you something. You see that? You are called sons of God. This is the honor that comes to peacemakers. You are sons, quios, not technon, not little kids, but sons, a, a status emphasizing stature, inheritance, dignity, honor, standing. It's to designate us as those who are worthy to bear the title sons of God, which is to say we reflect in our peacemaking the character of our God, the God of peace. You see a son and you say, ah, I know whose son that is. I I can tell because he looks just like his dad. Now, I have a son who's 10 years old. He's blonde-headed. He's very lean I never wore slim jeans in my life. Still, people will say, man, he looks just like you. No, no, he does not. No way. I don't see it. But that's what's being said here. When you're a peacemaker, you you bear a resemblance to God your Father. You can say, now there's a peacemaker because he's like his Father. He's like the God of peace. He's a peacemaker because he preaches the gospel of peace. He seeks those who, who are not peace with God and he, and he confronts them in their sin and, and lays out the work of Christ so that they could lay hold of his mercy. He wants people to be at peace. He, being, he brings or seeks to bring peace to the relationships around him. That's the mark of a true Christian. Christians are peacemaking and they're called sons of God because they alone reflect the nature of their father. That's just a tremendous honor, is it not? You used to be a son of Satan. John 8, says it, the words of Jesus. He says, you are of your father, the devil, but, but as many as received Jesus Christ to them, he gave the right to call themselves the sons of God. And many sons, of course, he will bring to glory. Just a tremendous truth. Listen to John MacArthur on this idea of being declared a child of God. He says, because you're his child, he provides for you. You don't need to worry about what you shall eat or drink or or wear. It's all cared for. He shields you from danger. He never sleeps or slumbers. He's your rock and your sure defense. His angels have charge over you. He bears you up on eagles' wings, and no evil will ever befall you. Because you are his child, he reveals to you eternal truth. Because you are his child, he frees you from the curse of sin. Because you are his child, you become an heir to all that he possesses. Because you are his child, he works everything to your good. Because you are his child, he keeps you from ever perishing. So if that's our status, then the price of peacemaking is really no price at all, is it? No cost that can't be covered by a heavenly father who calls you his child. 
And so as you, as you ponder, as you think on the, the, the broken condition of our planet, or maybe even the broken condition of the relationships in your life, but as you look out upon our world with all its evils and all its war, and all you can do is agree with that stanza from Longfellow when he wrote, For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Be sure to recall the last verse of that great song that he wrote in 1863. The last verse, again, as he heard the church bells on Christmas Day, he wrote, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we perhaps overlook what it means to be at peace with you, to not be a tortured people at odds with you, but to be made right with you, reconciled to you through Jesus Christ and through his work on the cross. Lord, we cling to that today as our hope. And we cling to that reconciliation as the only way that we can be the reconcilers of others. That the only way that we can have a ministry of reconciliation is because we've been reconciled to you. And so, Lord, it's daunting to look upon our world and to see all the war and strife. And even a little intimidating to look at our circle of influence or friendships and see the conflict there as well. But God, there are opportunities right in front of us in family or in other spaces where we can be agents of peace. We can be peacemakers, not just keepers of peace, but those who initiate, those who take action. And in taking action, we resemble you and you call us your sons and your daughters. Thank you for this challenge and for this great characterization of the of the citizens of your kingdom, people who want to take peace into the world wherever they go. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the abundant life that we share in him. I pray that as we leave this place tonight, we will share that life with others. In Christ's name we pray, amen.